to the Ryan Hickey Show right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. A happy belated Mother's Day. Hopefully your weekend, especially your Sunday, was an enjoyable one. You got mom a good gift. You took her out to a nice lunch. And you treated mom the way she should be treated on her very special day in recognition of all the help she has been in all of our lives and shaping us to be the people we are today. So start the show at least by saying happy Mother's Day to my mom. Great to see you yesterday. Thank you for all your help um, in, in you know dealing with me. That's for sure. It's been a long twenty-seven years. That is for sure. But it was a lot of fun yesterday. Hopefully, the weekend was enjoyable, and we appreciate you starting your week with us right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. As a reminder, we are coming to you live from the Big Italy Pizzeria Studios. And whether it's great pizza. Hot Heroes, and Phenomenal Dinners. Make sure you check out BigIldyPizza.com to find a location near you. We will get to the breaking news that the MVP award has been given to uh, Nuggets center Nikola Jokic. We'll do that in 10 minutes from now. Did Joel Embiid get robbed of the award? Or is Nikola Jokic deserving of winning his second consecutive MVP award, uh, MVP award? We'll get to that in 10 minutes from now. But I at least want to start with the Sixers, start with Embiid, and talk about their Game 4 win to even this series up at two games apiece against the Miami Heat. Because I think yesterday, if you're a Sixers fan, was both a blessing and a curse. Right? You won the game, you even the series, you, you really should be thinking there's no negatives here. But the reality is, you got, if you're a Sixers fan, James Harden's best game as a Sixer by far, one of the best playoff games of his career on Sunday. But there is a frustrating part. There is a negative part to it. And that's that you know he has the talent, but the consistency factor from James Harden has really yet to be there. And if you're going to win this series, if you're Philly, you need a similar performance from Harden at least once, definitely two more times in this series if you're going to get past the Heat. And I just can't sit here coming off a game which he dropped 31 points and tell you definitively, James Harden can mirror that performance, play at a similar level to how he did yesterday two more times in this series out of three games. So despite the fact that Philly has momentum, they've won two games in a row, and they've flipped the script so far after the Heat dominated games one and two, I still think the Heat are winning the series because I trust their role players more than I do in Philly. And usually, right, when it comes to the NBA postseason, what do we look at? What are always uh, the keys to winning a series? It's the stars. Right? Usually, we always look at the best players on a team. Kevin Durant, LeBron James, Giannis, Jason Tatum, and this series, Embiid. We always say, oh, well, the series where the team's going to win or lose is going to come down to their best player. You have your best players for the playoffs when they step up and either carry you or let you down. That leads to an early exit in the playoffs. This series, though, specifically, Sixers-Heat, to me, comes down to the role players. Like, this series, if Philly wins it, it's not going to be because of Embiid. If the Heat win it, it's not going to be because of Jimmy Butler. 
it's going to be the players around them. If it's a Sixers winning, it's going to be James Harden. It's going to be Tyrese Maxey. It's going to be Tobias Harris and Danny Green as the biggest reasons why Philly uh, beats the Heat now they're 6 or 7. If Miami can rebound and win two of the next three games, it's going to be because of Ben Adebayo. Because Kyle Lowry contributing more than he has the last two games. Tyler Hero hitting down shots more consistently. This is a series specifically with how these two teams have played so far where the role players are going to make the difference and determine who wins and who loses. And I just still can't sit here, even though they played great the last two games and especially the biggest question marker, James Harden, played tremendous yesterday. I can't sit here and say I feel confident that two of the next three games, James Harden will play at a similar level as he did on Sunday. But I do want to give him credit. I do want to give the Sillies, uh, the Sixers core credit as well. I think I said Sillies there, a combination of Sixers and Phillies. We'll go Sixers credit. Because again, Embiid returning gave the Sixers a mo- an emotional lift on Friday night in his return to Game 3. But whether it's Game 3 or Game 4, Joel Embiid's play is not the reason why the Sixers won these last two games. It's helped. He's been a boost. But the biggest difference has been the role players around Philly so far and around Embiid stepping up. And playing some of their best basketball of the season. Like James Harden yesterday. I don't think it's hyperbole to say. Had one of the biggest postseason moments of his career. Scored 31 points. Dished out 9 assists. He was a playmaker. He was the massive game changer in this game. Like if you look at it. We know James Harden can fill up a statue. This was his 45th career playoff game. In which he scored 30 or more points. So it's not... An anomaly to see him fill up the statue like he did. Again, 31 points, 45th time of his career, he has scored 30 or more points in a playoff game. But I would argue there are very few games that were as important as yesterday for Harden. We know his postseason struggles, they are extremely well documented. But in this game, in this swing game, when you're Philly, if you still need to win this game or you go down 3 1 going to Miami, the series is over. This is a quasi-elimination game. And for Harden, not only to play well, 31 points, but the most impressive part for me of his performance was how he played in the fourth quarter. As we know, crunch time, fourth quarter, not exactly the time you want to rely on James Harden in a big moment. Failed plenty of times with the Rockets, stuffed a statue when the game was decided late to make his point total look good, but not really have a big impact on the game. But to James Harden's credit, it wasn't just the fact they scored 31 points. It was the fact that he scored some clutch baskets. And in the fourth quarter was the biggest reason why the Sixers won this game. Because out of the 31 points he scored, 16, 16, came in the fourth quarter alone. He made some big shots, hit some big threes. And again, as Miami kept staying in the game, credit to them, and especially credit to Jimmy Butler, who was kind of single-handedly dragging the heat back in this game, there were plenty of points where the momentum was swinging towards Miami's way, where they could have taken the game and my and uh, Philly could have folded. But to Harden's credit specifically, he made some big shots, hit some big step-back threes, made some few nice plays in order to grab the momentum back. So 16 out of his 31 points came in the fourth quarter, which is massive. When they really needed Harden, he stepped up. He played all 12 minutes, which is extremely significant. Because one of the biggest storylines surrounding James Harden this season, and especially the last two months since he came to Philly, was his conditioning, was his lack of explosion, was the fact that he just looked like he lost a step. 
There's a lot of speculation about, you know, his weight, his conditioning, if he's partying too much, if now his lifestyle habits from earlier in his career are starting to catch up to him. For him to play as well as he did in the fourth quarter and play all 12 minutes is massive. Massive for the Sixers. You need him playing at his best. And frankly, too, throughout the playoffs so far, through the six games against the Raptors and the four games here against the Heat, he has been someone who has pulled Houdini. He's been Houdini in the second half. Disappearing act. He's rarely shot the ball in the second half. He has you know, scored and kind of front-loaded his points where most of the, his contributions came in the first half. This was yesterday, James Harden turning back the clock in a game the Sixers needed him most. Coming up clutch, scoring some key baskets, and doing so at key moments of the game. Very impressive for James Harden. I've been very critical of him. I've had a lot of doubts, especially about his postseason play. He really impressed me yesterday with the level of play and the clutch play he had in the fourth quarter. Again, do I think that this can continue in a consistent basis? I don't. But if you're a Sixers fan, part of the reason why I said you're, you're a little frustrated today is because you watch Harden yesterday and you know this guy still has game. This is the reason why Darren Moore had his eyes set on James Harden really since leaving Houston last year and was desperately trying for a year and a half to get the beard to Philly. You, we know the scoring prowess. He has talent. It's just unlocking that talent and doing so on a consistent basis. You've seen James Harden be so passive for most of his Sixers career. You've seen him disappear and really not even look engaged or look like he cares at some points throughout his Sixers career. So for him to at least play as well as he did yesterday, it's both encouraging and frustrating because you know the talent is there. You know he has it in him. It just doesn't come out on a consistent basis. Nice to see from Harden, but it wasn't just him though, too. Again, it was more than just James Harden yesterday. Terrence Maxey had another really solid game, 18 points, made some big shots himself. Tobias Harris is continuing to play some of the best basketball of his career. He has been, especially when Embiid went down early on, he's been really the only sixer that has consistently scored so far in this uh, first four games for Miami. He played well, made some, again, some timely buckets as well, 13 points. He's been really solid. And as you see Embiid still starting to work his way back, still trying to get used to the mask and get his conditioning back, it is really important, and credit to them, that the Sixers' core around him stepped up. Again, that's why, to me, this series is being determined by the role players. Because you even look at Embiid yesterday. scored 24 points, impressive. 7-13 shooting, so wasn't exactly dominating the offense like he normally was in the regular season. And you look at the fourth quarter. We talked about a close game, James Harden stepping up. They did not rely on Embiid at all, whatsoever. He took just one shot. The potential MVP, and as we know, that is not happening, with Adrian Wojnarowski just breaking the news a few minutes ago that Nikola Jokic has won his second consecutive MVP award. But the other MVP of the league, to shoot just one time in the fourth quarter, usually is not a good sign. But I would say yesterday that was a tremendous sign that the Sixers did not need to rely on Embiid whatsoever and they won a close game with some of the guys around them. Impressive, impressive win by Philly. And on the flip side here, part of the reason why the Sixers won game number four is not only because of the way Harden played and Maxi played, but also the way the Heat role players played. They were terrible. Miami gave them that game. You look at how Jim Butler's played in the two games in Philly. He has been tremendous. 33 points in game number three, 40 
points yesterday. He's been the only consistent scorer so far these last two games for the Heat that they can rely on. And no one else, no one else has been really anywhere close. Bam Adebayo, yes, he scored 21 points yesterday. But the thing with Bam Adebayo is, talent-wise, he's their best player. Like, he has more talent than Jimmy Butler. He's better than Kyle Lowry. He's better than Tyler Hero. And I get you're going up against Embiid. But I feel like if you're the Heat, you should want and expect a bigger contribution from Bam Adebayo. I get Embiid is arguably the best center in the game right now. But he is still trying to work his way back from, again, an orbital fracture, a concussion, and he's dealing with a torn ligament in his thumb. He's banged up. So for all the talent Adebayo has, you would like, if you're uh, Miami, to have a little bit more consistent showing from when you're, from, I would say, your most talented player on the team. 21 points is nice. I would say you want a bigger impact from Bam in these next two or the next three games. Hasn't been there. The score sheet, you know, it looks decent when you see 21 points on 12 shots. But I think you want a little bit more if you're the Heat. Tyler Hero, especially his last two games, has been very spotty. Sixth man of the year is just four from 12 from the field in game number four. Very inconsistent. Oladipo has been streaky. Kyle Lowry is really struggling with that hamstring injury after missing games one and two. Did come back. Uh, game three held scoreless. And game four goes just three of 10 from the field, including 0 of six from three. Look, he gutted it out. You could still see he's dealing with that hamstring injury. Had to leave the game at different parts um, to go get some hamstring treatment. So I give him a lot of credit for being out there and his leadership and veteran experience is massive for this Heat team in the playoffs. But it would be nice to see Kyle Lowry hit a few shots here as well and and get some contributions on the offensive end and not just have it all land on Jimmy Butler. So when you look so far, we're in the Heat. We're shooting well from three in the first two games. Now in Philly, couldn't hit the broadside of a barn from three. That is going to have to change, but I do have faith with two of the next three games in the series in Miami that favors role players when you're at home, I do think uh, the Heat are going to prevail. They're going to win this series and advance. Hell of an effort so far from the Sixers these last two games. Very impressive game from James Harden here in game number four to lift the Sixers, to tie in the series at two games apiece in one of the biggest postseason performances of his career. Big hat tip to James Harden. I just can't sit here and say I trust him to do this two out of the next three games. Because that's what it's going to take for Philly to win. Do you trust James Harden right now to contribute again two out of the next three games? I don't, but how about you? Love to hear your thoughts here on Facebook, Worldwide Sports Radio Network. You can tweet me, WWSRN underscore radio, or at Ryan Hickey Show. Are the Sixers winning this series, or are you still going to go with the Heat? We're also on YouTube, Worldwide Sports Radio Network. You can comment there as well. When we return... The MVP award has been unofficially announced. It is Denver Nuggets center Nikola Jokic. Did Joel Embiid, did he get robbed of the award? We will discuss that next. We listen to the Ryan Hickey Show on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. It is the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show. Right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Ryan Hickey Show with you on this Monday morning. Where else? But the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. So the most hotly contested uh, contested award of the NBA season, the MVP award, has been reportedly decided. Agent Wojnarowski broke the news just about a half hour ago. 
Denver Nuggets center Nikola Jokic has won his second consecutive MVP award. An official announcement by the NBA will be made sometime this week. I think Embiid was robbed. I would have voted for Joel Embiid. I even would have voted for Giannis over Nikola Jokic. I'm not trying to take anything away from what the Joker has done this season. It's been tremendous. And again, he has really played at an extremely high level. But the reality is when you are looking at the MVP award in this day and age, it really comes down to two things. Individual success, but also team success. Now it's really ever since Russell Westbrook, when he won his MVP award for averaging a triple-double in the regular season, ever since that vote a few years ago, it is now kind of skewed towards we want to reward someone who's playing well, but also having his play contribute to wins. The Thunder, I believe, were sixth in the West that year. Now it's about, you know, oh, are you a top three team? Are you a top two team? Is your play leading to wins? So when you look at individual and team success, for me, that would have equated to Joel Embiid winning the award uh, and winning the MVP this season. If you put up great stats, which Embiid did, your team wins, which the Sixers did, you were winning the MVP basically nine times out of ten. And I think the voters made a mistake and it should have gone to Embiid. Look, you talk about individual success. This is a guy who averaged 30.6 points per game. He led the NBA in scoring. He won the scoring title. No one has been more consistently dominant than Embiid so far this season. And we do the comparison, Embiid versus Jokic. Embiid has all the advantages. Scoring. Again, we just told you. Embiid won the scoring title 30.6 points per game. The Joker, 27.1. When you look at the team success, the Sixers won 51 games. They won 51 and 31 compared to the Nuggets going 48 and 34. So three more wins for the Sixers compared to uh, the Nuggets with, with Jokic. And the biggest bump and the, and the biggest reason why I think Jokic is getting love he is, is because you look at the Nuggets team, they're missing two out of the three best players. Right, Michael Porter Jr. played like seven games this year, basically missed the entirety of the year. Jamal Murray, as we know, unfortunately, had to miss the entire year after Chang's ACL last April. So two of the best three players for the Nuggets were out for essentially the entirety of the season. That is the biggest, if you're going to vote for Nikola Jokic, that's the biggest thing you point to. Hey, Jokic still, uh, still scored 27 points per game. The Nuggets still won 48 games, and they did so with two of the best three players on the Nuggets missing basically the entirety of the year. But the thing that I don't think is talked about enough or given uh, enough credit towards Embiid is that he basically kind of played similarly shorthanded as Jokic did this season. We know the entire Ben Simmons saga, how that played out. Well, Daryl Morey was sitting on Ben Simmons as an asset. So the second best player talent-wise, I, you say what you want about Simmons and his mindset and his motivation and his, his will to be great. Talent-wise, talent. Ben Simmons is the second best player on the Sixers this season. He didn't play one second of a game. So you had a still tremendously talented player out on the bench being a massive distraction the entire of the season where every single day there's questions about Ben Simmons and his future. Is he going to be traded? Is he going to try to come back to the team? And Bede multiple times kind of spoke about Ben Simmons, especially early on in the year, uh, when all that drama was starting to circulate in training camp when Simmons was there by not participating and leaving practice. And was he going to play? Was he not going to play? There was just a lot of drama even going into the season that Embiid had to deal with. Second best player, didn't play a second all year round. And yes, I get they traded for James Harden eventually, right? They, they, had him, they had Harden for the last two months. 
But you saw James Harden play. I saw James Harden play. It's not like James Harden was the James Harden of old who was a top 10 player in the NBA that Joel Embiid just got. Embiid still had to carry this team, still had to play uh, his you know best basketball in order for the Sixers to get that number four seed, in order for the Sixers to continue to win games. It wasn't like Embiid just coasted once Harden came in. Harden really didn't do, do too much. If anything, he was passive and kept deferring to Embiid and still allowing him to carry the team. So even though on paper you got what was supposed to be an all-NBA type player at the trade deadline, Harden didn't play like that. Harden's best asset was passing the ball. He didn't take much pressure off of scoring. He, ha- he hasn't, despite for him being a massive volume scorer and volume shooter, one game, either in the playoffs or in the regular season, has Harden not or uh, attempted 20 shots. He has not had one game this season as a member of the Sixers where he's attempted 20 shots or more. So even though he was coming in to help Embiid and kind of take some pressure and weight off of him, in reality, he didn't really do too much. He still wanted to come in there and coast, kind of similar to his role in Brooklyn where Kevin Durant was a star and Kyrie Irving was a star. Harden kind of just came in to be the facilitator. That's essentially what James Harden came into Philly with. He came with the same mindset. Despite the fact that you didn't have two sharpshooters on the Sixers like you had in Brooklyn, Harden still was pass first, defer to Embiid, and let him do his thing. So he got a few better looks and a few better passes, but Embiid still had to carry the Sixers team to 51 wins even after the trade. So for me, I would have given the award to Embiid. I think he was consistently dominant, which is what you want. He played some of his best basketball down the stretch. He, again, helped the Sixers get to 51 wins, fourth in the East, and the East is not the same as in past years. We always talked about kind of the, the, the difference between the East and the West. The West is always a deeper and better conference, where the East, for the most part, is pretty top-heavy. Two, maybe three teams that could give you a run to come out of the East in any given year. That is different now. The East is extremely competitive, and it is on par with the Western Conference. The Heat, really tough team all season long. The Bucks, I think, for my money, the best team in the Eastern Conference, 1 through uh, one through 12. Sixers are playing well. The Celtics, no team in the second half, or really after July, uh, January 1st, no team was better in the NBA than the Boston Celtics. So you had four, five, six teams at any given night could give you a run for money and make a run out of the East. So this is a deeper conference. So for the Sixers to get fourth, for the Sixers to win 51 games, is still really impressive. That still should hold a lot of weight because there's not a lot of easy games like there was maybe when LeBron was in Cleveland for a second time just a few years ago where there was really no true challenger in the East to uh, LeBron's Cavs teams. That's different now. The East is deeper. The East is more talented. So it's still very impressive when you see Embiid leading this Sixers team to 51 wins. You have to really kind of look at that and be impressed. And again, he led the Sixers to 51 wins and fourth in the East basically by himself. Tyrese Maxey has been a tremendous story and his game has really evolved throughout the season. He's continued to get better. He's continued to improve. But again, he's nowhere near a finished product. He's nowhere near the level where you could definitively say he is a a number two player, a a 1A to Embiid 1. It's not the case. 
He absolutely has the potential to turn into that in, let's say, a year or two. But there's still work, there's still consistency that has to be developed with Tyrese Maxey's game in order to get that level. And again, he's only in year two, so he still has plenty of time to develop and plenty of time to get better. So Embiid was still able to do all of this and have all this success basically by himself. So you have Embiid and Jokic basically playing on the similar playing field. I would have given the award to Embiid. Hell, I would have given the award to Giannis this season over Jokic. Because Giannis, I don't want to say he started slow, but especially coming off of a season in which you know he, they, uh, the Bucs won, uh, won the title. Team got off to a little bit of a slow start. You call it a championship hangover. Maybe not fully ready to uh, to get you know to lock into the season. The offseason, again was a little bit shorter, so he had a little less time to relax and recover and rest. Got off to a slow start, but for me at least, part of the MVP award is not just consistently playing well the entire season, but playing well when the games matter most. Turning it on at the most important part of the year, and that is re- kind of really. Trade deadline, All-Star break, and beyond. There was not many players better than Giannis after the All-Star break. He was tremendous. He took his game to the next level. He won some big games by himself, including one game over the Sixers. He had an incredible back-to-back game stretch against the Nets and the Sixers. He was unstoppable in both games and carried the Bucs to wins in both of those games on the road. Giannis was incredible down the stretch. And I at least won a reward stats that come in crunch time, basically, right? Not just have a stat pattern where you look at the box score and say, oh, wow, that guy filled it up for 30 points. Well, if 25 of those 30 points, let's say, came in the first half or came in the game was already decided, how impressive really is that 30 points? Like, you want the points to count and impact winning. That's what I thought Giannis did, especially the last two, three months of the season. He played great basketball, and it was directly leading to Bucks victories. So I would have, if it's, you know, you're telling me Giannis or Jokic, I would have taken Giannis. But I thought Joel Embiid should have won the award. I think he got robbed. He's been consistently dominant all season long. He has led the Sixers to a better record than the Nuggets, 51 wins versus 48. He outscored Jokic 30.6 points per game to 21.1, uh, excuse me. And again, Embiid won the scoring title. And if you want to say Nikola Jokic... Did more with less, right? Was able to carry his team despite the fact that two of the best three players in the Nuggets were not playing this season in Michael Porter Jr. and Jamal Murray. You have to say the same thing for Joel Embiid. The second best player on the Sixers was Ben Simmons. Like it or not, Ben Simmons, talent-wise, was the second best player on this team. He didn't play one second, one second of this season for Philly. You trade for James Harden. James Harden, I don't want to say he's a shell of himself, but basically he's a shell of himself when he came to Philly. He was passive, he was pass-first, and was still reliant on Embiid to have big games in order to carry the Sixers to victory. Harden's presence did not really take much pressure off of Embiid. Early on, defenses were you know a little bit maybe more uh, concerned about Harden, but quickly you kind of saw Harden's going to be a pass-first point guard. He's not going to score 30 on you know eight three-pointers made in a game like he did in Houston at times, or for most of his career. This was still an Embiid-led team. So even though you got on paper what you thought was going to be a top 10 to 15 kind of talent, Harden never really developed and materialized into it. So even when you make the trade, it's not like it was, it was this massive boost for Embiid. 
that was almost an unfair advantage that uh, Nicole Jokic didn't have. Embiid still had to carry this team, for the most part, by himself throughout the entire regular season. He was consistently dominant, led the Sixers to more wins, led the Sixers to better standing in the East compared to the Nuggets in the West. I think Embiid should have won the award. I think he got robbed. And I think the voters made a big mistake in giving Nicole Jokic his second consecutive MVP award over Embiid. How about yourself? Should Joel Embiid have won the MVP this season? Love to hear your thoughts here uh, on Facebook. You can get us at the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. You can get us on Twitter at Ryan Hickey Show, where my guy John Deal, big Sixers fan, does write it on Twitter again at Ryan Hickey Show. Jokic is 2017 Westbrook. Good stats, bad team, joke in the playoffs. Again, we talked about, right, the, the, that was really the last time the 2017 MVP award when Russell Westbrook averaged triple-double in the playoffs. That was kind of the last time I thought voters just looked strictly at stats. I believe the Thunder were six in the West. I have to double-check that, triple-check that, but they were not a very talented team. They were not a team that was high in the Western Conference standings. Since that, though, really the last five years, the voting has evolved into not only individual stats, but also is it leading to team success? That, to me, is what the voters look for and should look for. And that, to me, Embiid checks both of those boxes. Incredibly dominant, unstoppable all season long. Did so mostly on his own, but also led to team success directly. Embiid didn't average 30.6 points per game. He didn't lead the NBA in scoring and have those numbers be hollow. Have those numbers not correlate to victories. Again, Embiid did a lot of, had a lot of his success. Played as well as he did last year by himself. And it's still it's a 51 wins. I agree with John Nugent, who writes, my guy JD writes in on Twitter at Ryan Hickey Show. Jokic is 2017 Westbrook. Good stats. Team is not as, uh, as successful. Did Embiid get robbed of the MVP? You can also write on YouTube. We're there, Worldwide Sports Network. So check us out on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. Did Embiid get robbed of the MVP or... Is Nicole Jokic deserving of a second consecutive MVP award? We'll continue to get your thoughts here. And when we return, I want to quickly talk about Trey Lance and the 49ers. There was a report out there last week, kind of hinting that there's some concern, there's some frustration with Trey Lance within the 49ers organization. Do you believe it? We'll discuss when we return to this to the Ryan Hickey Show on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show, right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. And welcome back into the Ryan Hickey Show with you right here on this Monday morning. We will continue to react to the news of Nikola Jokic winning his second consecutive MVP award, beating out Giannis. Beating out Embiid. Look, no disrespect to the Joker, what he's been able to accomplish this season. I would have voted him third this year. Not taking anything away from his accomplishments. I think Embiid has been better. I think Giannis, frankly, has been better. I would have voted either, though. I would have voted Embiid one, Giannis two, Jokic three. I'm not a voter. Doesn't matter. That would have been my my trio, but instead the voters now give Nikola Jokic his second consecutive MVP award. So we'll continue to take your thoughts here, whether it's on Facebook, Worldwide Sports Radio Network, 
Twitter, you could tweet me at Ryan Hickey Show. Check out the live stream right there, and you can comment uh, on the video your thoughts of who should have won the MVP. And also check us out on YouTube. You can comment right there as well on YouTube Worldwide Sports Radio Network. We'll circle back to the NBA here, the top of the hour. I just want to hit on one quick thing here. Because in the NFL, really, any time nowadays with how news is so accessible and, and really how we as fans do tend to either get overly excited at reports, excuse me, or sometimes overly panic, depending on what the news is, so many teams, players, agents use the media as a way to sway public opinion, either set them in a frenzy in a good way or a bad way in order to benefit their client, their team, the player, etc. I think we, as the fans, are getting used by the 49ers here. Here's what I mean by that. So last week, very well-respected NFL reporter Matt Lombardo does a tremendous job covering the league from a national perspective. He tweeted out last week, That he has been told by sources that the 49ers staff has been continually underwhelmed by Trey Lance. Kind of seemingly out of nowhere, he's been told by sources the 49ers have continually felt underwhelmed by Trey Lance so far. This is not a report, or this is really, I should say, not a shot at Matt Lombardo and his reporting. I do believe he, he has received that news from a trusted source. What I am calling out, though is the motivations of the source who gave them that news. I, I don't buy that. Frankly, I'll, I'll tell you right now, I don't buy that report whatsoever. And there's really two reasons for it. Number one, I think the motivation for this news to get out there that there's some trepidation about Trey Lance's development is because this is the 49ers trying to drum up interest on the Jimmy G market. Like, think about it. right? Let's just logically think this one out. Why would this news come out in early May that the 49ers are underwhelmed by Trey Lance? Like, who is putting that out there? Is it another team? I don't think so. Because how does that benefit them? If the 49ers aren't feeling great about Trey Lance, well, then you want, if you're another team, especially another team in the NFC West, to have the 49ers run Trey Lance out there. You don't want to put anything out in the ether that all of a sudden would kind of maybe change the public perception of Trey Lance and maybe publicly pressure the 49ers into either keeping Jimmy G or starting Jimmy G. Look, let me just say this. With the power of social media, with how much we as fans now have access to teams and players, hear everything they say, and how much they hear us, I do think that fan disgruntlement or concern does sway decision-making in some front offices. Like, despite whatever they tell you, Fan or players and coaches listen. They hear what's talked about. They hear how fans are feeling, whether it's frustration or excitement. And sometimes it can cloud their judgment one way or another. So I don't think this news that the 49ers feel underwhelmed by Jimmy G or by, excuse me, by Trey Lance is coming from another team. I think it's coming from someone within the 49ers. And why is that? Why would they, why would they put out a report or wanted out there that Trey Lance may be struggling or not as developing as quickly and smoothly as San Francisco thought when they drafted him a year ago. For me, there's only one reason for it. It's to drum up interest on the Jimmy G market. They want teams now starting to think that, huh, the 49ers maybe aren't as impressed with Trey Lance as they thought they would be at this point uh, of his career. Huh. 
Jimmy G, who was supposed to be on the trade market, right? And he may, well, not supposed to be, he is on the trade market, but right now no team is biting in part because of his shoulder surgery and other parts because of his $27 million salary. Maybe now, if there is uncertainty about Trey Lance, the 49ers would consider keeping Jimmy Garoppolo. And if you were a team that maybe was on the fringe or maybe interested in Jimmy G, but decided to wait it out because there's no other team really in the mix, or maybe you're waiting and hoping the 49ers are going to either eat some salary or just flat out release Jimmy G, maybe now what I think this report does is kick those teams in the tushy and say, you know what, if you want Jimmy G, it's kind of now or never. I think this is put out by the 49ers in order to drop interest in Jimmy G and try to get his market back alive. Because the market is totally dead. We kind of talked about Baker Mayfield last year, uh, last week, and discussed why no teams are trading for him. And the, one of the biggest reasons why no team has been interested in Baker Mayfield is his $18.8 million salary he's guaranteed this year. And really, no team wants to pay that much money for a quarterback coming off of the worst year of his career. Well, if no team wants to pay for Baker Mayfield's $18.8 million salary, I could tell you right now, no team wants to pay Jimmy Garoppolo's $27 million salary, who's coming off of shoulder surgery and won't be able to throw until later on in the year. So right now, the Jimmy G market is absolutely dead. And I think this is a 49ers source putting this news out there about the uncertainty about Trey Lance in order to have teams think maybe the 49ers will keep Jimmy G and kind of motivate them to start to get the wheels going to talk about possible Jimmy G trade. Like I will say, one of the things that affects us overall as a people, not just in sports, but in life in general, is the power of no is strong. Now, when you are told you can't have something, immediately what happens? You want that thing more than ever. Oh, you can't have that piece of cake. It's for someone else. Well, you may not even like the cake. All of a sudden, you're like, oh, I can't have it. Now I want it. Sorry, you can't have this job or this promotion. It's going to someone else. Well, now all of a sudden, you want that job badly and you'll do whatever it takes to try to get it. The power of no, being told you can't have something, has a very strange power over us that does kind of almost work in reverse ways where even if you didn't want, you know, what was a snack, what was a job, what was even a, a girlfriend or a boyfriend, frankly, you, you were told, oh, you can't have me. Next thing you know, it forces people and it kind of motivates people to now start pursuing and chasing. That's what I think the 49ers are trying to do here. I think they are trying to put some smoke signals out there that, oh, we all assume Jimmy Garoppolo would be on the market. Sure, maybe, you know, there's some thought out there that the 49ers would give you a massive discount uh, either in price or either in draft compensation in a trade in order to get Jimmy G. I think there were some teams circling that thought they were going to get a massive bargain on Jimmy Garoppolo. This report, to me, is trying to put it out there that that's not happening. That's not happening because there's a good chance we could keep Jimmy Garoppolo for the 2022 season. And I think just the thought being put out there that hmm, maybe you can't have Jimmy G, maybe the 49ers will take him off of the trade market, I think well, is trying. The goal of this report is to at least try to motivate teams to get a deal done and start to grease the skids for a possible trade being done. This to me is strictly 49ers based with a motivation being to trade Jimmy Garoppolo. I don't think the 49ers want Jimmy Garoppolo on the roster in 2022, especially at a $27 million price tag when he's going to be the backup. I do think 
um, part of the reason why a Debo Samuel contract extension has not been agreed upon, and you are already starting to see that very icy relationship start to thaw out. I think the 49ers are trying to get that $27 million off the books uh, of Jimmy Garoppolo's contract in order to use some of that money to pay Debo Samuel. It's tough to pay Debo right now when your backup quarterback is getting $27 million. So this report to me is motivated by trying to get Jimmy G off the roster by trying to make it appear that the 49ers would in fact keep Jimmy G despite the fact we all assumed that Jimmy G would be traded at some point this offseason. So I don't think it's going to work to be quite honest. I do think the 49ers are going to have no choice but to keep Jimmy G. I don't think that's the worst thing in the world. I would I would keep him. Unless a, a team blows you away in a deal, I would keep him, have a mentor Trey Lance, and then have him walk at the end of the year. I don't think this report is all of a sudden going to get teams uh, up in a frenzy in order to trade for Jimmy Garoppolo. So that's the first reason why I don't think this report is true. And I think it's more, this is the 49ers trying to use the public perception and the public we'll say frustration of either either keeping Jimmy G or if a team, if you're a Panthers fan or, or a Falcons fan or a team that uh, otherwise needs help at quarterback, starting to get them panicked like, oh man, we better move quickly here before the 49ers wake up and keep Jimmy G in order to kind of force their team to make a trade. So I don't think that this is going to work. I do think the 49ers are just trying to drum up some interest in right now in what is otherwise a dead market. But the other reason why I don't believe it is because I just don't think it's true. Like, we did see Trey Lance last year. Despite the fact that he basically was hidden from view for most of the year, Trey Lance did make two starts. And in those two starts, we saw progress already from start number one, which is week five against the Cardinals, through start number two, which is week 17 against the Texans. He improved right in front of our eyes. So maybe it's not at the exact rate the 49ers were hoping for in terms of his progress and in terms of his development. But we saw in a small sample size, in two games in his rookie year, how much uh, Trey Lance is able to develop from his first start to his second start. You look at that first start against the Cardinals. Again, week five when Jimmy G was hurt. Understandably, he was shaky. He was skittish. Right? He completed just 51% of his passes in that game, threw 192 yards, threw a pick. He also ran the ball 16 times. That's significant because when you are unsure of coverage, when you are unsure of where your hot uh, hot read is, if there's a blitz coming, if you're just unsure what the defense is doing, more times than not, players will go back to what they know. And for a player like Trey Lance, what he knows is athleticism. He's going to tuck the ball and run. That's your comfort zone. That's your safety blanket. And so it's not an accident that Trey Lance ran 16 times. Part of that is Kyle Shannon, I think, drawing up uh, quarterback draws in order to make life for Kyle, uh, for Trey Lance easier and not have him com- be completely overwhelmed. But also part of it is just Trey Lance looking up, seeing his first option, not being there, and not having either the pocket presence or the patience to go through his progressions. So the 16 times he ran the ball, I think is significant. Because when you look at start number two, again, f- later in the season, first start was week five, second start when Jimmy G got hurt again was week 17. Week 17, he looked very comfortable. His completion percentage jumped up. It was 51% against the Cardinals. It jumped up to 69%. He threw for 249 yards, so 100 yards more, and also threw two touchdowns, and he ran the ball just eight times. That's the most significant part. He cut his run attempts down from 16 to 8, which goes to show you he felt more comfortable in the pocket. 
he went through his progressions a little bit more. He felt more comfortable in knowing and deciphering what defensive coverage uh, the Texans were in and knew kind of where to put the ball. He, I don't say blossomed, but he looked a lot better in game number two compared to game number one. So right then and there should be a dead giveaway of how much progress Trey Lance has made in just two starts from week five to week 17. So I really can't buy a report that the 49ers have been underwhelmed by Trey Lance when we have seen right in front of our eyes his progression from game one to game two be pretty stark. I think he's only going to get more comfortable, only going to get more confident the more reps he gets. And she'll get a lot this offseason, a ton in training camp, and obviously in his first full year as a starter, he will learn a lot. I don't really buy the support because I think already we have seen development from Trey Lance at a pretty significant pace to show you he is learning, he's raw, and he's athletic, but he's still able to learn and still able to process mistakes he did bad, you know, mistakes he made in, in the first game and correct them in game number two. So when there's reports out there that the 49ers are feeling underwhelmed by Trey Lance, personally, I don't believe it. Number one, because we just saw his development in two games uh, be pretty dramatic from game one to game two. He's already made progress. But also, I think this report, you got to look at it from who wants is out there, right? Again, teams, when they are leaking stuff to, whether it's Matt Lombardo in this instance, whether it's Ian Rapport, Adam Schefter, you got to remember, there's always a motivation behind leaking these. Adam Schefter is not, we'll say, paying these agents or these teams to put information out there, especially when it's negative against a player or a team. The 49ers, I'm sure if this was true, do not want Trey Lance's development being, you know, underwhelming out there. It doesn't benefit them. It only kind of brings along more criticism about the pick and whether they made the right choice or not. I think for me, this reporter's out there because the 49ers want to drum more interest in the Jimmy G market. It is completely dead right now. Any team that possibly could have traded for him either won't because of the money or did draft a quarterback in the draft last week. So I do think this is the 49ers trying to play with the emotions of teams and say, oh, you know, yeah, Jimmy G's out there. And yeah, maybe you thought later on in training camp or later on in the offseason, we were going to cut him or we were going to give you a massive discount for him. Well, guess what? If we're underwhelmed by Trey Lance, we're going to keep Jimmy G. So now either the price went up or you're not going to get him overall. And this kind of spurs teams into action now. Because the longer you wait, the more we see Trey Lance, eh, maybe we don't feel so good, we're going to keep him. I think this report is out there strictly to try to drum up interest in the Jimmy G market and get another team to trade for him any, most of, if not all of, his $27 million salary. That's why I think this report is out there. That's why I don't believe it. So I'm curious your thoughts here. Is there any reason for the 49ers to be, let's say, concerned so far about Trey Lance's development? We'll get your thoughts on Facebook, Worldwide Sports Network. Uh, on Twitter, at Ryan Hickey Show, and on YouTube as well, Worldwide Sports Radio Network. When we return, the Suns dropped game number four on Sunday. That series is now even at two games apiece. Is it panic time in Phoenix? Are the Mavericks going to win this series? We'll discuss when we return this on to the Ryan Hickey Show on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show, right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Ryan Hickey Show, back with you here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network on this Monday morning. Appreciate you joining us and making us a part of your week right here. 
So is it time to panic about the Phoenix Suns? If you're a Suns believer, if you're a Suns better, whether they're, they're going to get past the Mavericks in the series, whether they're going to get out of the West, whether they're going to win the finals. Is it reason now to be concerned and hit the panic button after they lose two consecutive games um, to the Mavericks and have this series even at two going back to Phoenix for game number five? I'm not panicking. I'm not panicking. I absolutely still believe in the Suns. They're going to get past the Mavericks. They're going to get to the Western Conference Finals. They're going to get to the Finals, and they're going to win. Because one of the biggest traits in any championship team is their ability to respond to adversity. I don't care who has won the title in the past. I don't care how easy the road has been. No run to a championship is smooth. Every team loses games. Every team at some point in the postseason faces doubts, has a down moment in the playoffs. And this weekend sure was another bumpy ride for the Suns. But just like they responded to adversity in the first half of the season, or in the first series of this postseason, I think they'll respond back and rise up. That's what great teams do. They respond to adversity and they use it as motivation and use it uh, as something to benefit them, not have it bring them down. The Suns have done that all season long. There's a reason why they've been the best team in the NBA. It's because they don't allow losses or injuries to derail their season, right? They've had Chris Paul out for sustained absences. They've had Devin Booker out at different points in the season as well. They've still won. Why? Because they are a team that continues to, you know, uh, respond to adversity in a positive way. Use it as a challenge and has it and have it motivate them rather than have some bad breaks or some bad whistles or some bad games kind of lose and crush their confidence. We saw this and just play out in round number one perfectly. Now, the Suns faced severe adversity right away. Game number two, you had Devin Booker hurt his hamstring as the Pelicans won game number two. And there was some real thought here that the Pelicans could win this series. We did not know how long Devin Booker was going to be out for. It ended up being three games. He missed games three, four, and five. But he could have missed the entirety of the postseason. He could have at least missed the, the rest of the first round, which I thought he was going to. You had different points of the series, especially in game number four. You had Chris Paul struggle. Um, you've had, you know, Brandon Ingram play really well. The Pelicans were a feisty, tough eight seed that, again, were pushing the Suns. And at different points in that first series, the Suns looked discombobulated without Devin Booker. But with that said, what happened? Game six, chance to close it out. I know Devin Booker returned, but that game is all about Chris Paul did not miss a shot. In game number six, closed out the Pelicans. It was a tough, rough and tumble series, but the Suns never panicked, never wavered, and they disposed of the Pelicans, even with the, uh, the injury to Devin Booker, one of the best players in the NBA, making life tougher. So I think that they'll be able to overcome, just like they did in round number one, overcome two sloppy games against the Mavericks, in which, look, I'm not taking anything away from the Mavs. I want to give him here credit in a second. But let's just call it for what it is. Whether it's Friday night in Game 3 or even yesterday in Game Number 4, both wins felt very fluky for different reasons in terms of the Mavs winning and the Suns losing. And so for me, I just think the way the Mavericks have won these both of these last two games isn't sustainable. It doesn't really give you a lot of confidence going forward that the Mavs can win two more games in this series. Now look, before we go any further... I want to give him credit because to Jason Kidd's credit, to the Mavericks' credit, to Luka Doncic's credit, to the rest of the team's credit, the two areas the Mavericks needed to improve big time after dropping the first two games in Phoenix, they have done. They have gotten help around Luka, and to Luka's credit, his defense has improved. We saw it in games one and two. It was a Luka Doncic show 
but no one else was able to step up, right? Lucas scored 30, uh, 45 points in game one, 35 points in game number two. It really didn't matter because no one else was stepping up next to Luka and the Sun just allowed Luka to get his, didn't allow anyone else to, to score and play well, and they blew him out. Game number one, the score was a lot closer than the game actually was. And game two, you know, the fourth quarter, as we know, was just legendary by Chris Paul and the Suns ran him out of the gym. But to Jason Kidd's credit, who called out the rest of the team and they've responded, to the role players' credit, the team around Luka has stepped up these last two games. Jalen Brunson, who was the star of round number one against the Jazz, was playing tremendous when Luka was out of the lineup for the first three games. And then when Luka came back, Jalen Brunson still played really well. He only scored 22 points combined in games one and two against the Suns. In these last two games combined, he's totaled 46 points. So Jalen Brunson, able, again, when the Mavs need someone else outside of Luka to step up and play well, Jalen Brunson has done so. He's been a scorer. He's taken it to the rack. He has given the Suns defense fits these last two games. Game four, Dorian Finney-Smith, come on down. Eight three-pointers. 24 points. Again, he was making some big, big shots, especially yesterday in that fourth quarter as the Suns were trying to scratch and claw their way back into the game without CP3, which we'll get to in a second. He was still able to hit a, a few big dagger threes to end any hope of a comeback. So the Mavs, after game two, when they're down 0-2, were imploring the rest of the bench, the rest of the role players to step up and help Luka. Jalen Brunson has been able to do so these last two games. Dorian Finney-Smith did so yesterday in a big game four. So credit to the to the Mavs. They have been able to get help around their star player, which is one of the biggest reasons why they have now even this series of two games. But also credit to Luka himself. Because even though he was scoring and, and playing unstoppable on the offensive end, his defensive effort, really lack thereof, was a big concern for this, Suns team, uh, for this Mavericks team. Even though he scored, especially in game number two, 35 points, we saw in the fourth quarter Chris Paul just take him to school. Just absolutely abuse him. Where every single time down the offensive end of the court, Chris Paul would seek out Luka Doncic and take him one-on-one and embarrass him. And to Luka's credit, took it personally, and in games three and four, has just put better effort out there. Like That's really what it is. I hate to kind of simplify this much, but defense in the NBA is so much about just effort. Sure, it's about rotations and schemes and reading the offense, kind of knowing what's coming and being in the right spot. But a lot of it is just effort. How much do you care? How much are you willing to hustle and move your feet and be in shape enough to just be able to move laterally with the offensive player? And so for Lucas, to Lucas Craig's last two games, he has improved his effort. Is he a lockdown defender? Absolutely not. He never is going to be. But he at least has tried these last two games, he has not been a liability, and he's made some decent plays. So Luka's defensive effort has improved, which is something the Mavericks desperately needed after game two he was exposed. And the Mavs have gotten contributions outside of Luka these last two games that have been the big reason why they've even this series of two. So with that said, I want to give the, the Mavericks credit because they absolutely deserve credit for playing a lot better in games three and four than they did in games one and two. But with that said, though, part of the reason why I, I called these two wins for Dallas fluky is in part because the Suns played uncharacteristically bad basketball down the stretch these last two games. You go back to game number three on Friday night. Chris Paul committed seven turnovers in that game. Seven turnovers. 
They were one of the reasons why Chris Paul is called the point guide is because he takes care of the ball better than anyone. His assist to turnover ratio is one of the best in NBA history. He is tremendous at distributing the basketball, getting you know his playmakers near the, the ball in space, but also he does a tremendous job in not giving away bad turnovers and not giving the defense extra you know opportunities to uh, to get a steal, get a deflection, or put his players in, in bad situations. He takes tremendous care of the basketball, arguably maybe better than anyone else in NBA history. So to see him have seven turnovers is extremely uncharacteristic. Only one other time this NBA season, see so he had seven turnovers, is tied for a season high. This is an extremely, extremely rare, poor game from CP3. And you look too, not only is he turning the ball over, he's not really even scoring a lot. Like he had more turnovers in game three than field goals. More turnovers than field goals in that game. Extremely rare when you have five field goal te- uh, five field goals made from the from the floor to seven turnovers. Chris Paul really struggled turning the ball over, not making a lot of shots. That's one of those games where you could chalk up just a bad game. Everyone has them. Star players, star teams, they have bad games. Devin Booker himself also was having trouble holding on to the ball. He had five turnovers himself. So look at the Suns team and how they played in game number three. It was uncharacteristically sloppy. And you know what? For me, that's fine. Teams, even great teams, have bad games in the playoffs. Not everyone is perfect. You're not going to have the best 16 games of your season in the playoffs. Or at least 16 consecutive games, right? Like, you rarely see anyone, any team, sweep, 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 sweep. Even a one versus eight. Most times, you're going to have that eight seed win a game. It's the playoffs. You know, these are professionals here. Any team can win any game on any given night. The key, though, in a series is doing so consistently. So one bad game, for me, when, uh, on Friday night is not too much of a concern. Yeah, 94 points the Suns scored on Friday night in Game 3. Fewest in a game all season long. And you got to go back to Game 4, the Western Conference Finals last year against the Clippers. Where that was the last time the Suns scored fewer than 94 points. So I think for me, Game 3 is just one of those anomalies where they just played really bad. Everyone really didn't, you know, everyone kind of had an off game and it happens. Game 4, it just to me was very bizarre. I'm not blaming the officials as a reason why they lost, the, the Suns lost. But look, I mean, Chris Paul fouling out for just the fourth time in this playoff career. Fouling out after just 23 minutes definitely impacted the game. Four first half fouls. Some ticky-tack yes. Some interesting calls. But even those four fouls limited him in the second half. And he played uh, just four minutes combined in the second half. Felt like both times he's on the floor, boom, picked a foul right away. Early in the third, picked up his fifth foul, sat the rest of the quarter. Came back early in the fourth, he's out there for like a minute, fouled out. Played just four minutes in the second half. One of the best clutch players in the NBA. You're not going to win many games when your best clutch player is out there for just four minutes. So game three, I chalk up just a really bad, awful game from the Suns. They were uncharacteristically sloppy. A lot of turnovers. Not a lot of guys make it shots. Bad games happen. Game four to me is just more questionable. The referees had a big impact in the game. Felt very choppy. And Chris Paul is barely out on the court. DeAndre Ayton didn't really get into much of a rhythm. Devin Booker tried to you know, carry the Suns by himself. Didn't really work. He had Dorian Finney-Smith coming out of the woodwork to hit eight threes. It happens. 
But now, going forward here with the series tied 2-2. Two out of the last three games are in Phoenix. The Suns are the deeper team. They are the more talented team. They are the clutcher team. No team is better in clutch situations than the Suns. I trust them. I think the Suns are winning this series. I'm not panicking after two bad games in Dallas. We saw the Suns have a few rough moments in the regular season. We saw them have a few rough spots in round number one against the Pelicans. They're able to respond. Again, overcoming adversity is a massively important trait for any championship team. Every team that wins a championship has to overcome adversity at some point in the season, whether it's in the regular season or whether it's in the postseason. They're always doubted. No run to the title is as smooth as we ever think it is. This is just another chance for the Suns to overcome adversity, and I think they will. I'm not panicking. The Suns to me are still my pick to win the championship. And these two sloppy games are not changing my opinion of it. I would chalk both of them up in different ways to being very fluke-esque. You got home court advantage. You'll still be fine. Suns to me are still winning the series. I'll go Suns in six. Suns in six. Now, I do want to say one thing really quickly here. Because also part of this game, what came out of it was not just Chris Paul's, you know, foul trouble, not just Dorian Finney-Smith playing as well as he did. There's also, unfortunately, another incident between fans and players. This time, though, fans and, and family members of a player, including Chris Paul. Chris Paul had his mom in the stands for Mother's Day, had his wife in the stands for Mother's Day, sitting pretty close to the Suns bench. And reportedly, according to... Sources, according to uh, reports, unfortunately, Chris Paul had a fan put hands on his mom. Reportedly, his wife was pushed also during the game. Now, the fan was escorted and kicked out. The Mavericks put out a statement about that as well, that the fan was swiftly uh, kicked out of the arena. It looked at least one video showing a fan getting escorted. It looked like it was a teenager. This is all I'm going to say here. Like, what are we doing? You are allowed, and I think fans have every right to be yelling stuff. Listen, I've been, we've all been in plenty of stadiums where you yell curse words, you're cursing at the other team. I think it's all well and good. I think it's just part of the experience. You know, fans can uh, give it to players. Players are more than, you know, will, uh, welcome to give it back. Like when Kyrie Irving, after game one, uh, their first round series against Celtics was flipping off uh, Celtics fans on his way down the court and kind of chirping back. I think it's all well and good. Like I do think fans have right to obviously stay within bounds to yell things and try to taunt other players. And I think players have every right to go back as long as it's not physical. But obviously, there's a line we all know. Right? We don't have to explain the line. We don't have to um, outline exactly what it is. But the reality is, we all know what you should say and what you shouldn't say. And unfortunately now, we're seeing just more and more, more events of fans, for whatever reason, still always kind of cross that line and going too far. And this is just the latest example. I don't know if the solution is moving fans further away. Like, I will say, and it's very interesting, and maybe it's just because now with fans coming back after, you know, having the pandemic and, you know, having no fans and then limited fans, and now you see, like, arenas full for really the entire year. But it is crazy. And it kind of always makes you wonder, too, how this hasn't happened more, how close fans are to players. Like, the bench, you basically have fans sitting on the bench. That's how close they are. Like, if you are... You know, depending on what arena you're in, you could just reach over and touch LeBron and sitting on the bench if you have a courtside seat. Sometimes being that close is not exactly what you want. I know the NBA really wants to have fans feel like they're right on top of the floor and they're the only sport 
where fans can be that close, right? Baseball, there's barriers and you're far away from the players. Football, you're far away. Hockey is glass, obviously all around uh, the rink, so you can't get that close. Golf has ropes. By far, the NBA is the one sport where you are literally right there on top of the players and have access um, to them more than anyone else. I don't know if the answer, and again, maybe a few bad eggs shouldn't ruin this, but I don't know if at some point, if you're Adam Silver in the NBA, so you know what, we just got to move fans back here. We got to get them off, you know, right on top of the floor. We got to get them away from just the bench area and put a buffer, some sort of buffer zone between the players and the fans. Something has got to change because we are now seeing more and more uh, of the events and it kind of, again, ruins it for everyone else. One person is not, um, you know, represent an entire fan base, not saying the entire Mavericks um, fan base is bad. Again, just one bad egg, as we know, does not represent everyone else because we've seen it in every city. Uh, being here in New York City, the Knicks fans last year, there's plenty of Knicks fans who embarrassed themselves and made the entire fan base look worse than just having just two people act like idiots. But you really hope that this is a trend that lessens itself, but unfortunately, we still, I feel like every single game now, have some sort of situation where either a fan runs on the court or says something they shouldn't say or crosses the line or says something um, you know, really out of bounds or now, unfortunately, getting physical. With a family member, in this case, Chris Paul's mom and wife. Something has got to change for sure. When we return here on the Ryan Hickey Show, Joel Embiid did not win the MVP award. Nicole Jokic instead got a second consecutive award. Was he deserving of it? We'll discuss and get your thoughts when we return us into the Ryan Hickey Show on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. It's the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show, right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Ryan Hickey, back with you here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network, reacting to the big breaking news, according to Agent Wojnarowski, that Nikola Jokic, the Denver Nuggets center, has won his second consecutive MVP award, beating out Giannis and beating out Embiid. It moves me. I think the voters made a mistake here. I think Joel Embiid should have won the MVP for this past season. And I would have even given the award, uh, if not to Embiid, I would have given it to Giannis. And if I had an MVP vote here, I would have gone Embiid 1, Giannis 2, Jokic 3. No disrespect to what the Joker has done. And I hate how now this narrative is going to basically be trying to bash Nicole Jokic and try to knock down all his accomplishments this season. He's had a tremendous season. He has had one of the best seasons of any player in the NBA this year. He is absolutely by far willing uh, and deserving to be in the top three of MVP voting. And he is, you know, again, single-handedly carried the, the Nuggets into the playoffs. And without him, the Nuggets would be a lottery team this year by far. But the reality is, I think the same case you can make for Nikola Jokic, you can make for Joel Embiid. The narrative surrounding Jokic is here, and I think their biggest reason why he won the award was because of what? Nikola Jokic still had success despite the fact that his two best players around him were out for basically the entirety of the season. Right, Jamal Murray missed the entire year with a torn ACL, and Michael Porter Jr. played like five games. I think it was seven to be exact. So basically, your two best players next to you were out the entirety of the season, and still you look at what Jokic was able to do. He was able to lift the Nuggets to 48 wins this season. They were a six in the West and again made the playoffs. But the thing is, though, for all the narrative about how 
uh, Jokic had success with no one around him, you could say the same thing for Embiid. Like Embiid, for 75% of this season, had just as little help around him as Jokic did. So why are we praising Jokic, but also not giving Embiid the same amount of credit? Because Embiid, with very similar resources around him, had a better year than Jokic. Embiid led the NBA in scoring this year. 30.6 points per game compared to Jokic's 27. The Sixers had a better record than the Nuggets. 51 wins compared to 48. And there was not a lot around Embiid this season. The second best player in the Sixers, Ben Simmons, missed the entirety of the season. Entirety of the year. Say what you want about Ben Simmons' work ethic and his motivation, how he fits into the Sixers. Talent-wise, he is the second best player on Philly's roster this season, and he barely broke a sweat. He played like five minutes in one of the first practices, and that was it. He wasn't even seen again. So Embiid had, you know, was playing by himself, needed to help, was having a tremendous year, where the second best player in the Sixers was off training in some gym, running five on five with guys like you and me. And I know they traded for Harden later on in the year. I get they brought some help, but you look at how James Harden played. James Harden wasn't, you know, this massively impactful player. He was pass first. He still deferred to Embiid and had Embiid run the offense. Like, Harden was along for the ride. Let's just call it for what it is. Harden was along for the ride uh, in Brooklyn with Kyrie and Katie. And he brought that same attitude, kind of that same play style to Philly. We're still in Beats team. The offense still ran through uh, the process himself on offense. And all Harden would do, sure, here and there, he'd have some decent and efficient scoring games. But it was just get and beat the ball. He was passed first. He was setting up uh, and beat on offense, and the offense was flowing through him. So you basically got a glorified point guard. Someone who was passed first, looking to set everyone else up. And it was still and be doing most of the heavy lifting on offense. Like, Harden came in, didn't have one game this season where he shot the ball more than 20 times in a game. We know James Harden loves to shoot the ball. We saw it in Houston. He was very ball dominant. His usage rate was through the roof, and he had to have the ball in his hands. He deferred to Embiid and basically was saying, hey, big fella, it's your team. You carry us. I'm going to be along for the ride. So why are we now giving Nikola Jokic all this praise for playing as well as he did this season, for getting the Nuggets to 48 wins, to getting them into the postseason as a top six seed, while having nothing around him, but also not saying the same thing for Embiid. Embiid did not have much around him at all this season. Tyrus Maxey is a great young player. He's still developing, though. He still has a ways to go to be that consistent, either number two or even a 1A to Embiid's one. Like, Maxey has a lot of talent, and he absolutely could develop into one of the most consistent and deadly players and best scorers in this game. But he still has a long way to go. He's not there yet. Danny Green's inconsistent. Tobias Harris, has really, out to the last three or four weeks, has not really played well at all. For 75% of the season, it was Embiid doing all the dirty work, lifting this team offensively and defensively, mind you, and doing so with really not a consistent force around him. So even though Nicole Jokic was missing two of his best players, Embiid equally didn't have much help around him. And even the one big trade they did make in bringing James Harden to town wasn't exactly like it took a lot of pressure off of Embiid because he was still, you know, having the offense flow through him and it was still up to him 
to score on a consistent basis, to make plays on the defensive end, and still carry the Sixers team. I get this is a regular season award, and I really, I really try to not look at any postseason uh, success or lack thereof as a reason to either push for a guy or knock him down. I've seen a lot of tweets on Twitter the last hour or so talking about Nicole Jokic, uh, Jokic's early exit in the, in the postseason and how much of an MVP he is when the Nuggets got bounced in five games. I'm not going to use the Nuggets' uh, struggles in the postseason against the Warriors as any sort of way to, to take away the award from Jokic. What I will say, though, is look at the last four games here against the Heat in this series for the Sixers. Two games without Embiid, two games with Embiid. It is night and day. It is night and day how well this Sixers team has played while Embiid is off the court or how much they've struggled with Embiid off the court versus how well they have played, how confident they look when Embiid is on the court. Even though, let's say points-wise and stats-wise, Embiid hasn't lit it up these last two games against the Heat. His mere presence alone has given guys like James Harden extra confidence. Given guys like Danny, Danny Green, excuse me, extra confidence. Tobias Harris, Tyrese Maxey. Like you look at this team, there's more life, there's more juice, there's more confidence in this Sixers team when Embiid returned in game number three and carried that through game number four compared to the first two games where he was not there. This team looked lost, they looked lifeless. His presence alone has elevated the rest of the team around him. Isn't that what an MVP is all about? Not only playing well yourself, but elevating the team around you and having your success lead to team success. Individually, Embiid had a better year scoring-wise. Record-wise, the Sixers had a better record and a better seed in the East compared to the Nuggets in the West. I get Jamal Murray wasn't there. I get Michael Porter Jr. wasn't there. But who really was around Embiid? If we're going to say Nikola Jokic had no one around him and he was carrying this Nuggets team and it's a miracle that they were able to even make the playoffs and get 48 wins, then why are we saying the same thing about Embiid? Because if Nikola Jokic had no one around him, who the hell were the great players Embiid had around him this season? Second best player in Ben Simmons didn't want to play at all and quit on the team. He had all of that drama surrounding the Sixers the entire season. Starting in training camp, the relationship between Ben and Joel... Is Ben going to play? So much speculation. There was, that could have easily served as a distraction. Instead, Embiid used as fuel and played and came out right out of the uh, gates firing and started this season playing tremendously and has carried that through to be a consistently dominant player. And even when James Harden was traded to the Sixers, James Harden is a shell of himself. It's not Houston Rockets James Harden. It's not MVP James Harden. It's not scoring champ James Harden. This is a different James Harden now in Philly than he was a few years ago with the Rockets. So although the name is the same, we cannot view we cannot view him and his impact on the team as being the same as it was a few years ago. We cannot look at him anymore as a top 10 to 15 player in the NBA. He's just not that. James Harden is not that. So even when you make a trade, towards the end of the season, to bring in James Harden and finally get rid of Ben Simmons, it's not like that trade all of a sudden eased the burden on uh, Embiid and kind of took some pressure off him. The offense was still flowing through the process. Embiid still had to carry this team, for the most part, on both the offensive and defensive end. And that alone, again, should kind of point out and show you that if we want to at least give credit 
to Jokic for playing well without anyone around him, we also have to have the same argument for Embiid. Like, I like uh, Giannis a lot. I said it for most part of the year, I would have given Giannis the MVP. The one thing, though, the one thing I'll say about Giannis that I think deserves, uh, or at least Embiid has over Giannis, is that the Bucks have been healthy. Drew Holiday's played a ton. Chris Middleton has been there. Like, this Bucks team, Giannis played great and played his best basketball down the stretch, I think is very important. But he also had help around him. He had a great team around him, which, again, was able to make his job easier. Jokic had nothing around him, but also Embiid had nothing around him. Like, why aren't we giving Embiid and the Sixers credit for his success when there's really no number two around him? He had better success with a similar cast around him. That's just the facts. Jokic had no one. Well, for the most part, Embiid really had no one. I like Tyrus Maxey a lot. He's still a developing player. Still has a ways to go to grow his game and grow his consistency. James Harden is now, again, a shell of himself. He's not a top 15 player in the NBA anymore. So even though you make that trade for the last two months of the season, it's not as impactful as a name James Harden used to be. This was still Embiid's offense. It was still his team. And the majority of their success had to go through Embiid. We kept talking about what? Going to the playoffs. Oh, you can't rely on James Harden because he has really shown you nothing in the regular season to have you believe he can play well this postseason. The key always was Embiid playing well to lift the Sixers to win. He got him to 51 wins. He led the NBA in scoring. And for me, he had equal parts around him as, a, as the Joker had in Denver, but had more success. That's where I would have given Embiid the MVP. I think the voters made a big mistake here. We got to realize, just because the narrative out there that Jokic is missing his two best players doesn't mean that Embiid had all this help around him either. It is very impressive, very admirable, what Jokic was able to do in the absence of two of the best players on the Nuggets for basically the entirety of the year. I just don't understand why Embiid is not getting the same credit. You want to say Jokic had nothing around him? Then let me ask you this question. Who did Embiid have around him? Who was this star player that took all of this pressure off of Embiid that made his job a lot easier? I I can't find him. You tell me who that player is, and I'll say, fine, I'll give the Joker the MVP. Tyrus Maxey is a very, really solid player so far. He's still growing. He's still developing. The consistency-wise, he's not there yet, where I would firmly say he is one of those true number two reliable stars just yet. James Harden, again, didn't want to shoot. Ben Simmons, the most talented player on this, or the second most talented player on this roster behind Embiid, didn't play for the entirety of the year. For three quarters of the year, the second best player on the Sixers was out. Willingly out, setting himself out. So, who was next to Embiid that all of a sudden was making his life so much easier? Who was taking pressure off of Embiid to where they didn't have to rely on him to score 30, 35, 40 points a game Play great defense on the other end in order to win games. Who is it? There is none. That's the answer. And that's the one thing I do not understand when it comes to narrative of the MVP, why we give Jokic all this credit for having, you know, as successful a season as he had and getting the Nuggets to 48 wins and getting them to the playoffs without any help around them. But then we also just look at the Sixers and say, oh yeah, don't worry, Embiid had more help. Ah, Embiid was tremendous, but, you know, the team was better. Not really. Not really. And Embiid had equal help as Jokic. 
I would have given him the MVP. That, to me, is deserving of an MVP award. I think the voters got it wrong, and Embiid should have won. How about you? Would you have given Joel Embiid the award, or would it have, should it have gone to, to, uh, to Jokic? Richard Semper T guy, I apologize if I butchered that, but Richard tweets at uh, Ryan Hickey Show on Twitter. Joker putting up uh, insane stats without his best teammate is the reason why he should have won. Again, the narrative's out there that uh, Jokic played tremendous, and he did without any help around him. But where was the help that Embiid had? Who was the player or players that Embiid had that made his job so easy? Who was the top 10, 15, 20 player Embiid had next to him all season long that took all the pressure off him? He didn't have one. He didn't have any help, just like Jokic didn't have any help this postseason or this regular season. So why are we constantly putting this narrative out there of Jokic did did more with less, but Embiid didn't as well? Embiid had just the same amount of help around him as Jokic had in Denver. But the difference was, Embiid scored more points, Sixers had more wins, and the Sixers had a higher seed in the East compared to the Nuggets in the West. Embiid played better with, to me, equal help around him. There was no star there. There was no real player you can rely on if you're Embiid. So for me, I would have given the award. How about yourself? Forget your thoughts here on Facebook, Worldwide Sports Network, Twitter, WWSRN underscore radio, at Ryan Hickey Show. Uh, on Twitter as well, or check us out on YouTube, Worldwide Sports Radio Network. When we return, we got two game fours tonight. What do the Celtics have to do to even the series? And is there any shot in hell the Grizzlies can win without John Morant? We will discuss this into the Ryan Hickey Show on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. It's the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show. Right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Ryan Hickey, back with you on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. So two big game fours tonight in the NBA. Let's start with the nightcap here. Look, I hate to put it this way and put it so simply, but the facts are the facts here. The uh, the Grizzlies, they're cooked without John Morant for game four. They're cooked. They're not winning this game, and I think now when you go down to the 3-1 hole, I hate to say, you know, I picked the Grizzlies to win this series, and I, I love John Moran. I was a believer in this Memphis team. I don't think they can overcome a game four uh, or a game four loss, and I don't think they're going to come back from a 3-1 deficit. They are cooked without John Moran. Uh, unfortunately, Taylor Jenkins said yesterday it's most likely um, going to be that John's going to miss game four, and uh, that's just a real shame. It's just a tough way now for this Grizzlies season to kind of start to spiral out of control. Now look, before we even you know dive into this game a little bit, I want to say this. I know there's some controversy and there's some discussion about Jordan Poole's play. Was it a dirty play or not? I personally have seen the replay a hundred times. I don't think Jordan Poole intentionally meant to grab John Morant's knee. I do think he was going for the ball. I do think it's one of those moves where it's just you're ripping through. Um, trying to get, you know, in what was a loose ball trap situation where kind of hands are, are flying and the ball is kind of moving all around. I do think Jordan Poole just went for it, missed it, and just was kind of in swiping it, just happened to, you know, land on John Morant's knee and uh, and unfortunately hurt Morant. I don't think it was intentional. I don't think it was done on purpose. 
Um, I don't think it's a, in terms of a dirty play because dirty play to me um, also includes and involves intent. And I don't, um, I don't think that's, this was intentional. Um, look, I, but I will say, I don't think it was, it was on purpose. I don't think this was meant to hurt. I do though understand why the Grizzlies are upset. Like you saw, like it almost does feel in a sense hypocritical if you're the, the Grizzlies. And I get why they feel that way, whether it's Taylor Jenkins of uh, kind of being upset and questioning well, the intent of Jordan Poole. I get why John Moran put on Twitter, quote, broke the code uh, and over a tweet of the play where Poole grabbed his knee. In part, because for the last, let's say, few days, all you kept hearing was Warriors fans, players, and coaches calling out Dylan Brooks for his dirty play. And that was a dirty play, where he was going to contest a Gary Payton sec- uh, the second layup. He basically swung his arm all the way across, crushed Gary in the head, and that fall put him off balance in midair and forced, unfortunately had him land awkwardly, fractured his Excuse me. <laughs> Sorry about that. Fractured his elbow. So Dylan Brooks, I would say rightfully so, was getting dragged by Warriors players, coaches, and media. So I get if you're the Grizzlies, where you kind of feel like you're backed into a corner where you have to defend your own guy in a situation that's almost undefendable. And now you have a situation where it's kind of a shady play where, again, the knee was grabbed. All of a sudden, John Moran, you're you know, in the fourth quarter of a game where you're getting blown out. I get why you feel upset. I get why Taylor Jenkins is trying to go to bat for his guy and, um, and basically kind of urge, like, hey, maybe take a look at this. You know, this is, you know, the Warriors are talking about how, you know, that they don't play the game dirty and plays like Dylan Brooks's uh, don't blow in the game. And then here, you know, we have an incident happen just one game later. Again, I don't think it was intentional. I get where the Grizzlies feel the way they feel, but I think the NBA made the right move, not investigating it, not handing down any punishment or suspension or fine for Jordan Poole. I do just think it's unfortunately one of those plays that happens where there's no intent, uh, no malicious intent involved. One of those where you're going for the ball. Unfortunately, Jordan Poole in this situation misses the ball. Unfortunately, leads to you know John Morant's knee injury, and now looks to be barring. I guess a miracle, although Joel Embiid was ruled out for Game 3 and then returned, but it does seem like John Morant's going to miss Game number 4, which is a shame, because I don't think the Grizzlies are winning this game in this series without John Morant. I know, I get it. In the regular season, this team was insanely good without John Morant. They went 20-5 and on the year in the 25 games John missed. But right now, with the way the, the Grizzlies are playing, there's not enough players playing well in order to carry this team past the Warriors in game number four. And even if Ja returns for game number five, down 3-1, I can't sit here and tell you they're going to come back. Game four is going to decide the series. I think it's going to go the Warriors' way, and they're going to put a nail in the coffin of uh, of the Grizzlies for this year. Because you look too, in order for the Grizzlies to win game number four tonight, you need players to step up. And unfortunately, they've just been too inconsistent. Jaron Jackson Jr. has been scoring, especially in game number one, was unstoppable, but he's in too much foul trouble. He always now has been getting in foul trouble and has either been sitting on the bench or has to play his game different in order to not foul out. When you're always kind of playing the foul game and always kind of worrying back your head if you're going to you know, change your style and be less aggressive because you can't afford to pick up a, a fifth or a sixth foul, that takes away your ability to play the game free, aggressive, and play the best you can. So for me, his foul trouble is too concerning for them to have him kind of take over. Desmond Bain, who played well in game three and had, you know, one of the better games of the playoffs in game number three. He's dealing with a back injury. For anyone that's dealt with a back injury, as you know, they don't get any better. They only get worse. 
So especially this postseason with no real opportunity to rest and get better, he's been hampered by the back. Tyus Jones has struggled. Like, there's just no one I can see right now stepping up and making up for the loss of John Morant because he's been the only consistently good player for the Grizzlies in this series. Everyone else has been up and down. So without kind of that go-to guy that you can uh, have on the roster in order to make up for the loss of Morant, I hate to say I think they're going to lose game four. Warriors are going to win, and that's going to put really the kibosh on this series. Warriors are winning the series. And for the other game, Bucks celtics I, for me, think this game, the winner of tonight wins the series. Now, obviously, if the Bucks were up 3-1, real hot take there. But I think if the Celtics win game number four, and I do think they're going to win game four, I think they even up the series two games apiece, you are winning this series. So I think the Celtics bounce back tonight, winner of game four, win the series. And I think if you're the Celtics, game number three should teach you a lot about how to try to beat this Bucks team. If I'm Ime Udoka, the head coach of the Celtics, you know what I'm doing in game number four? I'm allowing Giannis to get his. But what I am doing is not allowing anyone else to beat me. I think the, the game plan for the Celtics moving forward here should be exactly what the Warriors did to Nicole Jokic on the Nuggets in round number one of the Western Conference uh, playoffs. In round number one, the Warriors basically allowed Nicole Jokic to score as much as he wanted. Get to the rim, get some open three-pointers. They allowed him to score, score, score. What they didn't want Jokic doing was setting up his teammates, was being a playmaker. That was the one thing, and you can make the argument, why the why Nicole Jokic won the MVP award. It wasn't just the fact that he was scoring. He was setting everyone else in offense up with his passing, with his rebounding, and just his vision on the court and getting guys in position to succeed, to get them to get open looks to the rim or open three-point opportunities. The Warriors said, we'll let you score. We're not going to have anyone else beat us. And that's what they did. Nicole Jokic got a ton of, ton of points in all five games. And guess what? The Warriors won in five. If you're the Celtics, you have to do the same thing here with Giannis and this Bucks team. You've got to let Giannis get his. What you can't allow happen is to have Drew Holiday, Grayson Allen, Bobby Portis. You can't allow them to beat you. Because you saw in game number three, Giannis was absolutely dominant. Don't get me wrong. 42 points, 16 to 30 from the field shooting. He was tremendous. And even with the Celtics being a great, great defensive team, number one defensive rating in the NBA this season. You have the defensive play of the year in Marcus Smart. You have Robert Williams, who's a really good defensive center. You have long wings in Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum. This Celtics team matches up really well with this Bucks team in terms of length and physicality. But even with that said, when Giannis is in the zone and locked in, no one is slowing him down. Again, 42 points. He was having his way, making a you know making his hay, especially in the paint, and physically dominating Boston. If you're the Celtics, I think you use Game 3 as a blueprint and say, you know what? Giannis, you're going to get yours. You can average 40 points the rest of the series. As long as no one else steps up, I would feel pretty damn good about the Celtics winning this series. Because while you look at the 42 points, the 16 of 30 shooting, uh, 16 of 30 shooting that Giannis had, the biggest concern for me if I was the Celtics was Giannis's eight assists. Don't allow him to set up his teammates. Don't allow him to provide open looks to guys like Drew Holiday and Brooke Lopez and Bobby Portis and Grayson Allen, all of whom have you know been contributors and have hit shots so far throughout this postseason. With no Chris Middleton in the lineup for the rest of the series, you just have to focus on shutting down the other four players around Giannis. And if you do that, I think you're winning the series. Like Drew Holiday, to his credit, had 25 points in game number three. He played well. 
But it was an inefficient 25 points. 11-30 shooting. I think you live with that if you're the Celtics. Don't let Drew Holiday beat you. Always be contesting his shots. Make life hell for him. I don't think he'll be able to be efficiently uh, efficient enough to beat you. Pat Connaughton, yes, hit a few threes. Is he going to consistently beat you? No. Bobby Portis, again, made a few shots all this postseason. As long as you limit guys like Bobby Portis, Pat Connaughton, Drew Holiday, if that's your main focus on defense while letting Giannis get in the paint and let him get his, I think the Celtics are winning this game. If you limit Drew Holiday, to me, that is the blueprint for a Celtics victory. Now, offensively, they, you just need your stars to be better. Jason Tatum, I know he went 4-19. He really struggled. I do trust him to bounce back. He had a rough game one, bounce back in game two. Rough game three, I think he will bounce back and be better in game number four. Now, this Bucks team is, again, very physical. They are doing to Tatum what Tatum and the Celtics did to Kevin Durant in round number one, not giving him any sort of open look, harassing him at every single uh, aspect of the game, whether he's on ball, off ball, always having a hand in his face, always having a hand on his body. It's been a, a very tough series and a grind for Jason Tatum. Jalen Brown has been able to step up so far in his absence. I do think here that you'll get a bounce back game from Tatum. Jalen Brown continue, uh, continue to contribute here. I think the biggest key for the Celtics is allowing Giannis to get his, but not allowing no one else to beat you. That's the key. Quickly, before we wrap up the Ryan Hickey show, I want to say one thing. So the breaking news is out. About uh, from Adrian Wojnarowski, I should say. Slow that. Say Try to say that 10 times fast. That Nicole Jokic has won the MVP. The one thing I don't understand is the narrative surrounding Nicole Jokic why it's different than Joel Embiid. The reason why, let's call for what it is, the reason why Jokic won the award for the second consecutive year is for all of his great play and his ability to lead the Nuggets to 48 wins despite the fact that two of the best three players for the Nuggets and Michael Porter Jr. and Jamal Murray were not on the court for basically the entirety of the season. That's very fair. But why aren't we using that same narrative for Joel Embiid? Because he had equally less support around him, and he had more points, led the NBA in scoring. The Sixers had more wins, 51, and the Sixers had a better seed in the East, 4th, compared to the Nuggets, 6th. Why aren't we giving Embiid praise for doing more with less, just like the way we're giving Jokic praise for doing more with less? For three quarters of the season, the Sixers' second-best player in Ben Simmons, or the second-most talented player, I should say, in Ben Simmons, wanted nothing to do with the team. He didn't play. He stayed away. Instead, anytime he was playing basketball, it was like five-on-five in a pickup gym somewhere in Jersey. The second-most talented player on Philly's roster was nowhere to be found. He was MIA. That did not stop him beat whatsoever. He still was averaging... 30.6 30.6 points per game, having massive game after massive game, impacting the floor on both the offensive and defensive ends. And even when they traded for James Harden late in the year, James Harden is no longer the James Harden we have been accustomed to seeing, especially in Houston. He's no longer the prolific scorer that he used to be. He's no longer the impactful playmaker and game changer that he used to be. He is no longer a top 10 to 15 player. So even though his name still carries a lot of weight, his impact on the court is not significant enough that you should ding Embiid's MVP case for and say, oh, he had more help than Jokic. Even when Harden was there, it was still the offense was still going through Embiid. He still had to carry this team. Harden was just a passenger. He was passive point guard. His main goal was just, how can I get Embiid the ball? 
It still was going through Embiid's hands. The offense is still being run through him. So we're making the argument, oh, Nicole Jokic is more or less. Look at the fact that he carried this Nuggets team with two of their best players out to 48 wins and carried them to the sixth seed in the West. We got to be saying the same thing about Embiid because he had equally little help around him and carried the Sixers to a better seed in the East and he had a better statistical season. I think the voters made a big mistake. They should have given the MVP to Embiid because he equally did more with less just like Jokic did, but he had a better year and the Sixers had a better year than the Nuggets. That said, that is the conclusion of the Reineke Show for this Monday. Now, I'll be honest, I'm going on a little bit of a vacation here, so we will have a short break. I'm going to San Diego, very excited, visiting uh, my uncle, my uncle Brian, big listener on the show, so shout out to you. Going to visit him in San Diego for a few days, so we will not be having a show on Thursday, and I'll be coming back Monday morning, so unfortunately, no show. But we'll still be putting out content, still giving you some uh, instant reaction videos on social media, so make sure you're following along, Ryan Hickey, the Ryan Hickey Show, or just Ryan Hickey Show, I should say, on Twitter, Ooh. Instagram, and brand new on TikTok, Ryan Hickey Show on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, make sure you're liking and following, and you will get a lot of content, even though we're not on the air, between now and next Thursday when we are back. So between now and then, as always, stay safe, stay sane, and we'll talk to you next Thursday right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. 